some New Year's resolutions this year? Nobody. Wow. Because you're all so amazing already, clearly. Anyway, you think it's superstition, do you? <laughs> well, anyway, I was reading a BBC News article, it was just before New Year's actually, that had a list of, of simple tips to improve your health in the new year. Number two on the list was to adopt a dog. Tick. I did that yesterday. We survived the night. He didn't actually wake us up. And he's pooed four times outside and none inside. So it's all good. It's going well. <laughs> I, I just needed to get that one up. I forgot to put a cute fluffy picture up there for you, though. So friend me on Facebook and you'll be inundated with cute fluffy pictures. Anyway, number one on the list was focusing on the mind. Let me read you what it actually said about that. So this is according to Dr. Nadine Sami, Associate Lecturer for Sport and Exercise Sciences at the University of Exeter. She says, we should also be focusing on improving our minds by building self-awareness. You might think of this as something that prevents us from embarrassing ourselves, but according to Dr. Sami, it is much more than this. Self-awareness is the ability to recognize and understand your moods, emotions, and drives. And building it can play a crucial role in improving mental and physical well-being over time. By understanding your feelings, motivations, and behaviors in more depth, you can begin to act more consciously in order to make better choices for yourself. For instance, what is your motivation to exercise? When are you most and when are you least likely to stick to your exercise routine and why? Okay, so self-awareness actually empowers you to be able to make the changes you want. The thing about self-awareness, though, is it can be hard for a couple of reasons. First of all, we don't always see the true picture of ourselves. We like to think that when other people look at us, they see this, and actually, the people looking at us might be seeing that. And so we can't always tell. And there's then that little bit where we perhaps don't always like it, because if those helpful people decide to tell us what they're really seeing, we might not want to hear it necessarily. So self-awareness can be difficult, but sometimes we do need other people to actually tell us things that we might not have noticed. Now, let's think about that then as a church. Self-awareness of ourselves as a church. What do we really look like? Now, there's a great website that I enjoy doing. I've forgotten to bring my clicker over for my slides. Which is called the Mystery Worshipper on Ship of Fools. And this, wor this website helps you with your self-awareness because on this website... Mystery worshippers, anonymous individuals, go and visit random churches they've never been to before, and they write an online review of the service. You'll be relieved to know, I checked, they haven't visited us yet. I say yet, if there is a mystery worshipper amongst us here this morning, please say nice things about us. But I've, I've printed out a couple of interesting reviews to share with you. So... <laughs> Here we go. So, this church, which shall remain nameless, one of the questions they reviewed was, how full was the building? 
When my husband and I arrived five minutes before the service was due to start, we doubled the congregation. (laughs) The vicar arrived a little later, and three other people dribbled in, the last after the sermon had ended. The important bit, this is the most important bit about a church, okay? Was your pew comfortable? Not the coffee mail, but the pew. Was your pew comfortable? Padded chair, comfortable, but noisy if moved across the wooden floor. And then we get to my favourite bit. I, I, I love picturing this. Did anything distract you? An elderly lady who arrived immediately before the service began rustled about in a plastic bag for things, then kept dragging her chair forward until she was sitting right next to the table behind which the vicar sat. She commented on things throughout the service. Oh, that was it for that one. So that was that church. Another rather interesting one that I wanted to show. So this is a different church, quite quite a different church, this one. How full was the building? Of approximately 300 or so seats, I would say 95% were occupied. Interestingly, they had a timer countdown on the three big video screens showing five minutes to the start of the service. You know what's coming, don't you, people? Most seats remained empty till after it wound down completely, and then there was a sudden rush to grab a pew. Never seen that before in my life. But the sadder bit here, did did anyone welcome you personally? No. I arrived a full 15 minutes early, but there was no one on the door, despite plenty of people milling around. Well, that was a bit sad. Um, What books did the congregation use during the service? Books? Helen's like, books? A book? None. I noticed that virtually no one had brought a Bible, including the very token few older people who should have been set an example, I thought. (laughs) Were there any distractions? There were many distractions. The congregants seemed quite restless, from the guy sucking the lollipop through the worship to the people playing on mobile phones. Maybe they were reading their Bibles on their mobile phones? I don't know. And then the most important bit, exactly how long was the sermon? 47 minutes. Outrageous. So, I'll leave you to form your own judgments about those. Um, One of them in England, one not. One, uh, One of them was in Ireland, I think. I think the second one is in Ireland. The first one was in England. So, It's hard, isn't it, to hear a view? But what I pondered as I was reading that, see, that's people's opinions, these mystery worshippers' opinions of church, their view. But actually, whose opinion really matters on what our church is like? Yay, it's the Sunday school answer! Jesus! What if Jesus was the mystery worshipper and came and visited those churches or came to visit our church? What would his review say? And the helpful thing is that there's a bit in the Bible where Jesus does that. He talks about how he's walking amongst the churches and he gives a review. And it's in the book of Revelation. Now, I have to warn you, I feel a bit under pressure 
preaching on Revelation this morning, okay? Because the youth in their cell group have been studying Revelation in considerable depth for the last full term. So if I get anything wrong, they're going to haul me up on it, okay? They probably know more than we do at this point in time. So this is John having a vision from God in the book of Revelation. And we're going to start looking at Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. So it says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, I can never say that one, it just sounds weird, and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." So the book of Revelation has a lot of imagery in it. Thankfully, on this particular occasion, God's kind enough to actually tell us what the imagery represents, because he doesn't always, but this time he does tell us. And so he goes on to give John these letters to the churches to write down and send to the churches, reviewing how they're doing, what are they good at, what do they need to work on. So it's seven churches that he writes these four. The churches are in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Why them? They were not the only churches around. There were plenty of other churches. The particular ones he writes to, if I can aim with my pointy stick, are just in a little loop here, those ones there, those seven. Okay? They happen to be on a nice little sort of loop around us, but perhaps the route that a courier might follow if he was going around delivering the letters as he went along. 
But why them? Why should he write to those? Are they more special than the other churches in some way? Not particularly, no. They all happen to be in that area. The theory is that it's to do with this symbolism again. There's seven churches. And I want to, youth, can you remember what the number seven represents? Those of you who've been paying attention, this is where they either astound us or this goes horrible. What does the number seven represent, youth? Youth, come on, youth. Can you remember? Huh? Not life. What, what does it, no? No? You're, you're just randomly guessing stuff, Andrew. To be fair, you haven't been in a lot of those sessions, have you? Because you've been elsewhere. Go on, Lydia knows. So, yeah, just about completeness. Perfect completeness, okay? Think back, in the story of creation, on the seventh day, God rested because it was all complete. He'd finished. It was complete, okay? So perfect completeness. And so what I would suggest to you is that these seven churches, is not particularly that they're special, but that it was an example of seven churches representing the complete church. They are a representation of the complete church in its wholeness, with all of its different characteristics, different personalities. So these are representative churches. And we can probably find things about ourselves, therefore, in the descriptions of those churches. So what we're going to do in in this series is we are going to go through the review of each of the churches. So we're starting off with the first church he wrote to, which is the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was quite a big city. Um, It had a harbour, sort of quite a major port. It had a lot of trade routes going through it. It was quite multicultural. You'd have a lot of different people groups passing through, a lot going on, and certainly plenty of pagan influences going on there. Paul was based in Ephesus for about three years, teaching and sending out teaching to people in that whole area. And if you find the book of Ephesians in the Bible, that's the church in Ephesus. So the book of Ephesians was written to this church. So what does he have to say to the church in Ephesus? We'll find it in Revelation chapter 2, which says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. 
So he starts by saying, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. They explain to us what those were. Can you remember what are the seven stars? The angels. And the lampstands are the churches. So we've got this picture of Jesus walking amongst the churches, holding these angels in his hand. Now, there's difference of opinion of, over what we mean by these angels in his hands, okay? It might mean literal angels that are designated to each of the seven churches. Or some people think that actually it's meaning the leaders or pastors or elders of those seven churches, depending on how you interpret that word. But, but the bottom line, if we think about what do we perceive that role of an angel to be, it's angels as messengers, as warriors who fight in battle. And so whether they're literal angels, whether they're leaders, whatever they are, it's giving us that picture that Jesus holds in his hands the ones who bring his word to us, the ones who fight for us. He holds them in his hand. It's under his control. And more than that, he is walking amongst us. He's not set up the churches and run off and left us. He is walking amongst us. He is very much here, very much with us. And so this Jesus who walks amongst us has some feedback for this church. And I like the way he does feedback. Have anyone ever had to give feedback in work or whatever? Yeah. So you will probably know that the right way to do feedback, when you're giving feedback, you do what they call a sandwich, okay? First of all, you put the base layer of something they're doing well. Okay, then having done the something they're doing well, you then pop in the filling of, this is the bit you really need to work on. And then you finish it off, sandwich it in a top layer of, but you're also doing this really well. Okay, that apparently is the best way that people receive feedback. Because they're more, if, if you go straight in with, you need to change such and such, immediately defense is up, not interested. Okay, and this is kind of how, Jesus gives the feedback to the Ephesian church. He gives them a positive, something to work on, but back to another positive. Now, he doesn't do that for all the churches. In the letters to some of the churches, he's a little more blunt and to the point. So, evidently, sometimes people need a slightly firmer approach because perhaps they're not willing to hear the criticism. So I hope that we are a church like the Ephesian church, and that actually we will respond to God with the nice, easy feedback sandwich, and he doesn't have to resort to being blunt with us. That would be my hope, that we can receive it that way. So, let's look at this sandwich that he gives them. What he starts with saying to them is, I know, I know your works your toil and your patient endurance. I know. How important is it to you that someone notices when you've worked hard? Can, can I confess a little something? Okay. I really hate hoovering. Really, housework, not my thing. Okay. I have to really push myself to do it. And so when I do do the hoovering, Our hoover lives in a cupboard upstairs in my bedroom. When I've done the hoovering and I get downstairs and I've finished hoovering downstairs, I leave the hoover out so that when my family get home at the end of the day, they can see I've done the hoovering. 
okay? They don't necessarily comment, but it just helps me knowing that they know, yeah, I did actually do the hoovering today. It makes me feel so much better. It matters to us, doesn't it, that people know when we've done something. Looking at it more seriously, though, you know, if you've been juggling so many balls in your life and you are up to here, and yet still you chose to go the extra mile for someone... We want that to be noticed. We want to know. Jesus knows that you've done that. Maybe nobody else noticed, but Jesus knows. If you've gone out of your way during your week to go and help someone who was struggling, when perhaps you you were struggling yourself, frankly, but you went and you helped them when they were struggling, Jesus knows that you do that. He sees what you're doing. And hopefully that's some kind of comfort to us. Specifically for the church in Ephesus, what he's saying I know they're doing is that they cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So what they are doing is they are being really careful about what is God's word, what is godly truth, and not allowing teaching or behaviours that don't fit up to God's word. And that's hard work. I can quite imagine where it says that they have that they are enduring patiently. Perhaps one of the reasons they have to endure patiently is because some of the people who they've had to say, mm, actually, no, that's not okay to, probably don't like being told that. They've probably had people have a go at them for that because it's hard to do that. And so... Take some encouragement this morning. If you've ever had to say to someone, challenge them over, I'm not actually sure that's what the Bible really says about that, or I don't think that's the right way to go. I don't think that's the godly way to go about this, and perhaps been burnt. Know that Jesus knows that you do that. Jesus knows and he sees So we've had our encouraging bread at the bottom of our sandwich that Jesus sees. He knows your hard work. Are we ready for the filler? Do do you feel suitably comforted by the base layer to face a bit of potential criticism next? So what he says to them... Is it going to work? There we go. It's appeared. What he says to them is... But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Or in some translations, it says, you have abandoned your first love. What's that talking about? Generally, I think it's talking about two things. Firstly, your love for Jesus, your first love, your love for Jesus. But also within that is our love for other people, because our love for other people flows out of our love for Jesus. So it's those two things. Now, to help us sort of ponder that, the love we had at first, I wonder if any of you can sort of think back to a time you were first in love with someone else. Take a moment if you can. Now, if you don't have a memory of something like that, don't worry, because I can remember when I was first in love with my husband, and so I can illustrate for you. And he's not here this morning, so I can say whatever I like. So, 
When Chris and I were first dating a few years ago now, we were at uni, um, and our relationship actually started online. Now, for most people, that wasn't possible back then because, you know, Facebook Messenger and, and all of that stuff didn't exist. But actually, because Chris is such a geek, he actually, on his computer setup in his room in college, he had an equivalent of something like Facebook Messenger. It was called Ytalk, and it was basically the same as Facebook Messenger, but it didn't look as cool, okay? Think old computer style, and we could type messages to each other, okay? Now, I was living out in a house about a 10-minute bike ride from my college, and so in order to chat with him on this Ytalk, I would have to cycle into college to the computer room, because you didn't have internet in your home back then, okay? The only way you accessed these things was in the computer room at college. At school, you didn't even have it at that stage. Because we were at university, we did. And so, to start within our relationship, for many, many weeks, every evening, instead of sitting in the comfort of my home, I would cycle over to college and sit there in the college computer room, on the computer, having a conversation with my Isn't that sweet? Now, this, 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 was, this was more at the flirty stage. L Lydia, you say pick up the phone. Have you met my husband? Picking up the phone does not work with him, okay? Believe me, why talk was the best way to get him, all right? It, it's what worked for him. It, it's a geek thing. He was equally sweet towards me, though, because one evening when I had actually gone to visit him and it was late and dark, and I had, he was literally the opposite side of Cambridge to me, and I didn't have the heart to cycle all the way home by myself. So he walked me all the way across Cambridge home, saw me in at home, and then walked all the way back to the other side again because he loved me so much. If, if it's not embarrassing enough for you already, this one's quite bad, actually. This is just between us, okay? During one of the summer holidays when we were apart, because I lived in Norfolk, he lived down on the south coast, I missed him so much, I spent my summer holidays painting a portrait of us together in order to give it to him as a present. Unfortunately, we no longer have that painting. It, it was quite beautiful, it was. And finally, on our first Valentine's Day, when we were first married in our house, for my Valentine's Day present, he just did, didn't just give me a present. He did me a treasure hunt around the house to find my present. Isn't that sweet? So, needless to say, I, I'm getting eye rolls from my child who's in the room who's like mortified. Needless to say, we don't behave like that anymore, okay? We're a bit busy with life now, yeah? We're getting on with stuff. We have things to do. We don't do that so much anymore. And isn't that what happens as time goes on in a relationship? Some of those things that you would have done at first, just, you're busy. You have an agenda. You've got work. You've got kids to sort out. You've got some DIY to do. And you get busy. And I think maybe we can be a bit like that in our relationship with God and in how we function in church, that our relationship with God can become about, right, I'm serving in church, I'm leading the worship this week, or I'm serving the teas and coffees, and I've got to go to this meeting, and I've got to go to that meeting, and I must remember to pray for such and such. And, and we become very busy doing, and we perhaps lose something 
as that first love that we had for Jesus. And you know, if we lose that first love, that, that real heart for God, then the things we're busy doing start to become a little bit self-righteous maybe, that actually we're no longer doing them from that place of love, but we're doing them because this is my things I have to do and I'm a good Christian and I do these things. And we start to feel quite good about ourselves because we're not doing it from that heart of love. And so there's a challenge there for us to come back to that place of love. It says in the passage, remember from where you have fallen. Remember that place when you first realized what Jesus did for you, how much he loves you. Allow him to love you again. Because the instruction in the passage here is just just to repent and start doing the things you did at first. You know, we had a really good conversation in our ladies' cell group this week where we're saying about when, when you perhaps don't, don't feel very loving towards someone. We're very, we're very honest in our group. When you're not feeling very loving towards someone, sometimes you have to start just behaving as though you love them. Start doing the things you would do if you love them. And then gradually, your feelings start to catch up. And maybe that's what we need to start. If we feel that our relationship with God has got a little bit too business-like, maybe we need to start doing some of those things that we did at the beginning of our walk with him and allow ourselves to fall in love with him again. And as we fall in love with Jesus, our love for other people grows out of that. That's where it comes from. So that's our challenge. But remember, this is a sandwich. We need the top layer on our sandwich. And so God comes in with a, but in your favor, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. It's a really good word for getting some hate in that, Nicolaitans. Basically, the Nicolaitans, they, they were a group in the early church who, essentially, they were taking the freedom that we have in Christ and applying it a bit too liberally. So they were essentially saying, well, because we're free in Christ, we can do pretty much whatever we like because we're free and forgiven. And so they were actually bringing in some quite ungodly stuff into the church and trying to say, this is okay, and perhaps bringing in some pagan practices and saying, that's okay, we can do that too. And so God's saying, this is in your favor. He's commending them on this. And I think... Something we need to bear in mind, you see, there was, he's given them their challenge to, to return to their first love, to fall in love with Jesus again. But we mustn't just hear that from this passage, because actually there's a lot in it about saying that he is applauding them, he is saying, well done, because they are sticking to the godly teaching. They are testing and saying, is this actually godly or not? Is this what God's word says? They are seeing those who are bringing in false teaching and saying, no, actually, this is not okay. And that stuff is important too. Because actually, I'd suggest to you that, that love without truth isn't actually love at all. It's just some kind of fluffy romance, you know? And I'm sure we, we can all, well, pra- perhaps you can't all, but I can certainly admit to, in my youth, being guilty of that kind of fluffy romance without truth, where there, there were boys who I just thought were wonderful. And I would sit and daydream about them. And actually, that wasn't love, because in my mind, they were this wonderful thing that wasn't really who they were. That wasn't love. That, That was just fluffy romance, yeah? So we need both. 
we need the truth as well. And so what's the challenge we can take from this? Think back to those reviews I read of those two churches at the beginning and just perhaps take a moment to ponder what would Jesus say to them? And then let's be open to some self-awareness for us as church and ask ourselves, what would Jesus be saying to us? Based on what we've read here, what can we take from that? And in thinking about that, thinking about our church, the question is, what's your part in that? What do you need to do? How do you need to grow in your self-awareness? Perhaps if you're sitting there thinking that, you know, this first point that we had about Jesus saying, I know, I know how hard you're working. I see what you're doing. If you've been sitting here this morning feeling, yeah, I need to know that Jesus sees how hard I'm working. I need that comfort. Can I challenge you on that and say, if you're feeling that, if you're feeling, I need someone to recognize how hard I'm working, chances are there's someone else in this room who's feeling that too. So how about you be the one to bring about the change and go and say to someone else, I've noticed how hard you're working. I really appreciate what it is that you're doing. Is your challenge like that that's given to the Ephesian church? Are you so busy, busy, busy that maybe you're feeling that challenge? You know what? Yeah, I'm doing a great job working hard. Yeah, I know God's word really well. But actually, I just need to come back and fall in love with Jesus again. I need to come back and let him love me again. Or is your challenge that actually, yes, you're so full of that love, but maybe there's a bit of truth missing from that love. Are there things that you're, Jesus loves me, it's wonderful, and you're just hiding under the carpet one or two things that maybe actually aren't godly, where you need to bring in that bit of truth. Because if you're not growing in truth, if you're not listening to God's truth, if you're not earnestly seeking his word and his ways, then actually that love is perhaps a bit fluffy romance-ish. So take a moment and think for yourselves. And as we do that, I want to invite us, I've got a um, song that we're going to play that just to give us some time to ponder about that. So maybe you want to resolve to actually notice. As you know, God's noticed what you're doing. You then want to go and extend that to someone and say, hey, I see what you're doing and I believe God sees what you're doing. Maybe you just want to take this moment to allow yourself to fall in love with God again. Or maybe you want to resolve that actually, yeah, there's some things where I need to bring some truth in here. So hopefully, if I click on here. Let's just take a moment to close in prayer. There's no fear in love, but there is a cross. Lord, we love you, and we know that you love us, and we want to reach out in love to others. But Lord, we know that your love for us and that that relationship we have with you came at a cost because you loved us so much that you went to die on the cross for us. Lord, let that be at the heart 
of everything that we do. Father, as we seek to serve you wholeheartedly, truthfully, let that be at the heart, that knowing that you love us and all we do, Father, is reach out to offer that love back to you and to share that love out with those around us. We choose, Father God, to turn around and follow you, as it said in the passage, to hear what the Spirit says. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.